Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the story of London, the podcast dedicated to telling the history of London in one single long narrative tale. We've reached the year 1196. We have come to a hugely important chapter in its story. Over the last six episodes of the podcast, I've tried to tell the tale of the context of how London gained its first mayor, a man called Henry Fitz Aylwin. If you look back at the last six chapters to try and place Fitz Aylwin's story into context, I've been telling the full story, or as best I can, of what was going on in England from the death of King Henry II. And since part 74, the one truth I hope you gained from these episodes was the state of utter chaos that was England. Since King Henry died, the nation had lurched between only brief moments of political stability. Inept, greedy official in high office had seemingly been followed by new inept, greedy officials in high office. King Richard's utter failure as a king to provide any kind of cohesive thought towards the business of running his state had left England, as we've seen, facing a new crisis almost every year, crippling levels of taxation which were bankrupting normal people, political instability which had paralysed the nation, and corruption that was endemic and widespread. Not since the reign of King Ethelred Unred had England almost been as ineptly run as this. It is perhaps only because Richard was followed by an even more inept king that his reputation today is saved. But I called book three of the story of London the Dark Age and said this was the darkest age of the city in all that was to come, and I believe it was. Other ages will have plagues and wars, but this is one where the city was like a small boat on a ferocious sea. But to end the tale of this first mayor the leader of the city during this chaotic time, we need to place him into context. We need to introduce his equal and opposite, the man who would become the first mayor's nemesis, a man whose story will forever colour how we see Henry Fitzalwin. In 1196, there was an incident in London. The one and only account of this is found in Book 5 of a text called Historia de Rebus Anglicis, which is an amazing document, basically a history of England from 1066 until 1198, which is written by a man called William of Newbury. Whereas much was written about the event, we will cover this episode, only two documents at the time mention it. We know from the annals of the Greyfriars that a man called William of the Longbeard was executed in London in 1196. But why he was killed? Why in the scant records of the Greyfriars this event is even worth mentioning? I mean, it's the only entry they make that year. And to discover just who the hell this William of the Longbeard was, we must turn to Book 5 of William of Newbury's History of English Affairs. And there discover the story of an insurrection, a rebellion, an attempted revolution, call it what you wish. In William of Newbury's sole account, we have an exploration of something dramatic and serious happening in the city of London. In Newbury's account, we have the story of the man who shook the city to the core, ended up effectively ending the career of the most powerful man in England, and whose words haunt our world to this day. Welcome then to chapter 79 of the story of London, The Shade of William Longbeard. Now, to understand what was about to happen, I just need to remind you, dear listener, of two salient axioms. The first that there existed within London, a great and furious anger. It was not always present, but yet repeatedly manifesting itself whenever roused. London was a passionate town. I do not claim it was alone in being a passionate place, nor have I ever. 
but there was a unique stubborn ferocity about this temper of the city. For many chapters, I've described its rage, primal and visceral. For me, it began, I believe, towards the end of the era of Londonwick, the old Saxon town on the bend in the river, its first sparks appearing out of the ravages of the Vikings, which we covered all the way back in chapter 9. This rage was made manifest when Alfred the Great moved the town behind the ancient Roman walls, and we saw it first showed itself in the struggles against Haston, the Viking warlord, back in chapters 15 and 16 of the story. Ever since the Peace Guild of the Anglo-Saxon times, which we covered in chapter 17, there'd been hints of the London mob, what Londoners would do if you gathered enough of them together and presented them with an injustice. And we had, in only the previous few chapters, seen what happened when that sense of misjustice was misplaced. The mob who had fallen upon the Jewish community of London only a few years earlier. That rod had been brutal. Mobs of armed men with iron bars trying to break into Jewish households and the same mob setting fire to homes to burn out the residents inside with the survivors fleeing to the Tower of London. The second axiom that must be understood is that London's religious fervour was equally as ferocious. London had been a strongly religious city for some time. This feeling had begun long before the Wolf Bishop, Wolfstan, had unleashed his barnstorming sermons upon the faithful during the many wars against the Vikings, which we covered back in chapter 25. But we have recently covered just how deep this religious ferocity of London could go. Rahiri of Smithfield had captured this mood. A single man, eloquent and passionate, had come to London, and if you accept the contemporary accounts, had conceived of creating a church out of nothing upon the marshland of Smithfield. He'd built most of it with the help of poor Londoners. He'd gained formal recognition based on the depth of his support, and almost from the very moment it had been consecrated, Rahiri's Church of St. Bartholomew's had become a miracle factory. A plethora of cures and miracles would take place in front of fevered crowds watching with expectant eyes. As briefly, St. Bartholomew's became the centre of faith in London over Holy Trinity Priory or even St. Paul's Cathedral. And while this charismatic and passionate faith had never subsided, it had not reached a peak it had seen in the days of Rahiri the Fool. But that does not mean this religious ferocity was not there. It was. Again, London was not unique in being a strongly religious place. Everywhere and everyone was. But this primal raw anger, based on responding to injustice with violence, and this immeasurably deep wellpool of religious passion, both sat there as powder kegs below the surface of the narrow streets of London. And someone simply managed to light the fuse and detonate them both at the same time, it seems. So who was this man? William Fitz Osbert, aka William of the Long Beard, is an enigmatic character. According to William of Newbury, he was born and raised in London. In his telling, he had two brothers, one of whom was perhaps an alderman, the other one who was a priest, although the priest may have been a cousin or a nephew, we don't know for sure. We know William Fitzosbert was educated. He was a powerful speaker, and by all accounts, an amazing orator. There is a tradition from other sources that says he was a crusader, supposedly having travelled on the Third Crusade with the army of Richard I. If true, then as a Londoner, no doubt, before he left, he would have tied into that legacy of Rahiri and spent his last night up in Holy Sepulchre Church, London, praying for deliverance on the crusade to come. Now, I'm not too sure if he was, but as we'll see, there is evidence to suggest, and quite a lot of it, that he was a crusader. William of Newbury says about this man, quote, He was born in London and was named William, having a surname derived from his long beard, which he had thus cherished in order that he might, by this token, as by a distinguishing symbol, appear conspicuous in meetings and public assemblies, unquote. So the first thing we can say is he had a surname, but he also had this nickname. And as we have said in previous chapters, there were men alive in London at this time who were known by their nicknames. 
Now, Newbery would have you believe that this long beard was deliberately cultivating the long beard in order to stand out, to appear conspicuous. But if you take on board that Newbery will be trying to make him look bad at every available opportunity, and take anything negative he says as bias, then what does William of Newbury confirm in spite of himself? Well, simply that Fitzosbert did stand out. He was conspicuous in meetings and public assemblies. When even the man who is trying to remove agency from you admits this is something you do, it gives the claim validity, I feel. Newbury goes on to say the following as criticism of this Fitzosbert. Quote, he was of ready wit, moderately skilled in literature, and eloquent beyond measure, and wishing from a certain innate insolence of disposition and manner to make himself a great name, he began to scheme new enterprises and to venture upon the achievement of mighty plans." Unquote. What do we get from that few lines? Well, it says that he was moderately skilled in literature, and that tells us he was educated, he'd been to school, he could read, which meant that, being as he was from London, he was educated in one of the plethora of grammar schools of London. And then the description of him being of a ready wit, well, if you go back and listen to chapter 69 and the contemporary guide to London at the time, you can hear of the battles that took place between the young scholars of London. This would have been Fitz Osbert's training ground, where he'd learned to debate to verbally spar with his peers. He was a product of those London scholars, a verbal street brawler, always ready to throw down. And even Newbury accepts that his greatest skill, the greatest talent Longbeard possessed, was that he was eloquent beyond measure. This was a man who, when he spoke, you listened. You watched and listened. He was charismatic, probably very funny or very ferocious, a brilliant political operator. It's interesting to note that at every available opportunity, William of Newbury will attack the character of William Fitzosbert. To him, the entire episode we're about to explain was down to Fitzosbert being a villain, a vain and nasty man, a megalomaniac who committed every possible sin you can imagine and hypnotised the innocent people of London to do his bidding. I think it would be fair to say that William of Newbury does such a number on William Fitzosbert that it reads as bad as a columnist in the Daily Mail doing a piece on Meghan Markle. Yes, that bad. But I'll let you decide if I'm being unjust towards William of Newbury. Now, in William of Newbury's account of Fitzosbert, there are scant details about our protagonist's background. Newbury describes how Longbeard, quote, had an elder brother in London from whom, during the period when he was at school, he had been accustomed to solicit and receive assistance in his necessary expenses, unquote. So his older brother paid for him and supported him, suggesting no father or a father who died when he was young and that his older brother was the one who supported him. Now, Newbury's version goes on to say that in time, William Fitzosbert turned against his brother and accused him of treason, which I'm going to discuss later as it's a whole thing. But there are a few key lines Newbury includes in the description of events that provide us some clues as to the family background. Firstly, that as he grew older, his brother could not support him anymore. Quote, his brother being but little able to satisfy him, owing to him being busied with the care of his own household, unquote which suggests his brother had married and had his own family, which also suggests that Fitzosbert had nephews or nieces living in London. So forgetting the accusation about his brother, which we will come back to, we need to see what William Fitzosbert did in 1196 that so rocked the political status quo. And to understand that, we have to keep one thing in mind. Clearly, he was part of the political status quo, because as William of Newbury clearly says, quote, Afterwards, by favour of certain persons, he obtained a place in the city among the magistrates, unquote. Now this is where we believe he became an alderman. And it's worth noting he did it by favour of certain persons, so he needed help to become an alderman. Someone supported him. There were no political parties, no bodies to help, but as I will discuss in future chapters, what we do know was happening around now is that the guilds of London were organising themselves 
illegally. We know from records that fines were being inflicted upon people in London who were organising guilds in the city without the Crown's permission. Or in other words, they'd not paid the Crown a shed load of money to become a guild and they now had to pay out fines because how bloody dare you? Now, so for me then, by favour of certain persons, suggests there's only two possible candidates for who those certain persons would be. Either A, it's one of the proto-guilds of the City of London in the shadows quietly aiding the man to become an older man on their behalf, I think it's unlikely, or B, it's one of the Eskivins themselves. Just like we saw Osbert Eightpence give Thomas Beckett a job as a favour to his father, Gilbert, a nepotistic nod to help one of us along, which then begs the questions, was it his brother helping him along or a family friend? And the second one then makes us ask who the hell was his father and who the hell is his brother? But, be that as it may, he became an alderman or an elected official of London. He sat in the same tables as the oligarchs. He saw them up close and personal. And I think this is where the issue started. William of Newbury claims, quote, At length, by his secret labours and poisoned whispers, he revealed, in the blackest colours to the common people, the insolence of the rich men and nobles by whom they were unworthily treated, unquote. In short, William Fitzosbert discovered something via his secret labours, and either acting alone or having gained the confidence of others in the status quo to aid him via poison whispers, he revealed in blackest colours the secret he had found. And what was it? Well, William of Newbury is very plain about the accusations. Quote, This man, being a citizen of London, as if under colour of fealty to the king, took upon himself to plead the cause of the poor citizens against the insolence of the rich, alleging in powerful terms, for he was most eloquent, that at every royal edict the rich spared their own fortunes and imposed by their power the entire burden on the poor and so defrauded the king's treasury of a large amount, unquote. Which in itself is, one, not only a hell of an accusation, it could well be true. In fact, we have to say, I mean, look at it. A powerful, moneyed class were looking after their own interests at the expense of the poor? Said accusation would not surprise anybody alive today. Indeed, such an accusation would probably carry more weight today. This is an age where we treat that as a thing to be upset about. But back in the 1190s? Hey, this is feudal England. Who the hell would expect rich men to ever act otherwise? Why would it have even been an issue, this accusation, to even begin with? Well, it's worth remembering a few core facts. This is the London that had just experienced the financial difficulties of the reign of Richard I. He'd come to the throne, demanded a veritable fortune of the people of England to pay for his crusade, then appointed Chancellor Longchamp who had kept tax levels high and had run the country so badly that the Chancellor had almost caused a rebellion. Then the King had been captured and held ransom. More crippling taxes had been inflicted upon the realm and a council of five men had raised the astronomical fees needed to pay for the King's ransom and there had been so much graft going on they needed to do three rounds of tax collection to gather up the fees. And added to that, the tax levels had barely dropped. Now Richard was back and was off fighting war in France. Londoners were feeling this. They were feeling this level of taxation hard. And then one of them, it seems, starts telling them that the Eskivins of London were passing off the excessive taxations upon the average Londoners and keeping their own wealth safe. Based on that, then the first thing we must take from this is that William Fitzosbert was not a revolutionary, so much as he was a whistleblower. And we all feel that hits differently, does it not? I mean, revolutionaries we can in our own heads dismiss as troublemakers, but a whistleblower? 
I mean, in today's political climate? Oh, we can well understand the instant attention and fury such a man would gather. And you know what? As such a person would strike a chord with today's political audience, he clearly struck a chord with the 12th century Londoners. As William of Newbury is forced to admit, quote, For he inflamed the needy and moderately wealthy with a desire for unbounded liberty and happiness, and allured the many, and held them fascinated, as it were, by certain delusions, so closely bound to his cause, that they depended in all things upon his will, and were prepared unhesitatingly to obey him as their director in all things whatsoever he should command." Now, there's a part of Newbury's statement there that I need to come back to and will later, but the main takeaway from that line is where the true danger this rogue alderman was displaying towards the city of London. That he could provoke the poor has to be expected in many ways. Every demagogue inflames the poor. But us sitting in the 21st century can perceive and see the true danger he posed because he inflamed the passions of the moderately wealthy, a.k.a. what we today would call the middle class. Yes, the exact transition of the term to the 11th century would be a mistake to make. This is an alien world to the later class system so beloved by historians and politicians. I only use the term middle class to provide a framework for us to conceptualise who these people were. But the moderately wealthy in London at the time? These are the craftsmen of London. The butchers and the bakers, the blacksmiths and the leather workers, the shoemakers and the fishermen, the ones who had just paid a quarter of their yearly salary to the state in the form of serious taxation. The ones who could turn an angry mob of the poor into a furious legion of the citizens of London. This was dangerous. This was, as any of us could tell, instantly elevating this campaign to the position of being a serious danger to the status quo of London. William of Newbury acknowledges this because in the very next sentence he says, quote, A powerful conspiracy was therefore organised in London by the envy of the poor against the insolence of the powerful, unquote. Notice William of Newbury never once says these claims are wrong. He actually doesn't. He doesn't say they're lies. In fact, He seems to confirm them. And now we've got to ask the next question. How powerful was the powerful conspiracy? Well, in the next sentence, William of Newbury clarifies this by saying, The number of citizens engaged in this plot is reported to have been 52,000, the names of each being, as it afterwards appeared, written down in the possession of the originator of this nefarious scheme, unquote. 52,000? Okay, okay. Allowing for medieval hyperbole, which I think we can all agree often happens when it comes to numbers. But even allowing for that, what we see here is a movement, a political awakening, a political party, numbering at least in the tens of thousands from across London. Many historians I've read have commented the number was more likely 15,000. So somewhere between 15,000 and 52,000 depended on the actual population of the city. Whichever way you read it, this was no small cabal. This, this was the political movement of London at the time. Fitzosbert was not just speaking to a few folks. He had the city, the poorer and middling classes threw their weight behind this whistleblower. Longbeard, according to Newbury, owned London, politically at any rate. So having gathered a legion of followers behind him, Fitzosbert goes on the attack. We do not have any time frames here, but this appears to be going down over the space of a few weeks or months. And William of Newbury now says that Longbeard, quote, relying on the large number who were implicated by zeal for the poorer classes of the people, While he still kept up the plea of studying the king's prophet, he began to beard the nobles in every public assembly, alleging with powerful eloquence that much loss was occasioned to the revenue through their dishonest practices, Confrontations. 
William Fitzalbert would attend meetings held by these Eskimos, maybe folk moots, maybe the hustings courts, and he would beard them, aka he would lambast them and verbally attack them. It comes across that over the days and weeks as a series of increasingly tense political confrontations were taking place. And it was working. Newbury doesn't explicitly say so, but he does accept that Fitzalbert was using powerful eloquence. And notice how Newbury has to say that what Fitzosbert was claiming in these public meetings was that Mayor Fitz Aylwin and his fellow Eskivins were ripping off the people, but that by their actions, quote, much loss was occasioned to the revenue, unquote. And there's some method in his madness here. In the 12th century, ripping off the poor was not a crime. <laughs> Far from it. It's just what happened. No, 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 the only crime at the time would have been to suggest that the rich men of London, in the process of ripping off the poor and keeping their own wealth untouched, were ripping off the king. That they withheld revenues from the king, monies that could have gotten him released earlier when he was held hostage, perhaps. Yeah, that's bad. And it gets worse when you think about it. Because the mayor of London and the bishop of London had been two of the men who had sat and organised the ransom of the king. Henry Fitz Aylwin, the new mayor of the city, would have been in an ideal position to make sure, alongside the bishop of London, that the Eskivins of the city were able to hide their lack of giving, able to massage the books to hide their lack of fair contribution. And by extension... This suggested that the other three men on that council, who included the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, Hubert Walter, had looked the other way. That amidst the graft that had so troubled the fundraising for the ransom of the king, this graft was being conducted and overseen by the body designed to prevent it. That is not a good look. So how was Mayor Fitz Aylwin responding to this? How was our Londonstone, the first mayor of the city, responding to these accusations? Was he refuting them, addressing the crowds of followers of Fitzosberts to assure them this is not true? It does not appear so at all. William of Newbury is remarkably silent on the whole matter, and there is only one throwaway line in his narrative which hints at the response of the mayor and the Eskivins. He says of the mayor and the oligarchs of London that they, quote, rose up in indignation against him in consequence, unquote. Now that's a vague description, rose up. Does that mean they rose up against him in anger and condemned him? Or does that mean they rose up as in they tried to fight him, or even worse, kill him? We cannot say for sure. I do think, however, it's the latter. And I think that because of Fitz Osbert's response to this rising up in indignation was to flee London. Quote, he adopted the plan of sailing across the sea for the purpose of lamenting to the king that he should have incurred their enmity and calumny in the execution of his service, unquote. Now, we know Fitz Osbert was more than a match verbally for the oligarchs of London. And someone who had been educated in London's street battles of verbal wit would not have beaten a hasty retreat from a torage of well-argued points that Mayor Fitz Aylwin could have unleashed. No, he would have fought back. So I believe he fled because there was a genuine threat to his life. Fleeing across to France, where we know the king, was currently based building castles and waging war upon the king of France. But there's a line from earlier in William of Newbury's account that makes this trip by William Longbeard to see the king really important. See, according to William of Newbury, William Fitzosbert did have an audience with the king sometime earlier, but we're never told when. And in this tale, he says that Fitzosbert accused his brother of planning to murder him and was able to have this audience, quote, having come to the king to whom he had previously recommended himself by his skill and obsequiousness, unquote. And that's an important line, because the sheer logistics of how and when William Fitzosbert met the king to accuse his brother really needs to be questioned. Because this is King Richard, Cordelion, the king who is never there. The question must be asked, when the hell did William Fitzosbert meet with King Richard to accuse his brother of murder? 
But then also remember, this is Richard III, the lord of the massive Angevin Empire. How the hell would William Fitzosbert be known to him, been recommended to him? So much so, Fitzosbert received an audience with him? I mean, Fitzosbert wasn't a sheriff of London. There's no record in Newbury's tale that he'd done anything to gain the attention of the king. In fact, there could have possibly been only one way a man such as Fitzosbert could have gained the king's attention. Military service. Probably on the crusade. So this, I believe, one of Newbury's throwaway lines lend gravitas to the idea that Fitzosbert had served on the crusade. Now we know from Roger of Howden's account of the Third Crusade, a great storm hit the ships carrying the crusaders off the coast of Portugal and mentions, quote, a London ship in which was William Fitzosbert and Geoffrey the goldsmith, unquote. So we have to take on board that maybe he gained the attention of Richard, yes or no, by simply being amidst the few, those brave foolhardy few, who had travelled with him to Acre and Jaffa and had marched towards Jerusalem. Now we know in Westminster on the 11th of November 1194, so soon after Richard I had arrived back in England from being held hostage, we have a record of a court case in Westminster, as recorded by the 18th century historian Sir Francis Palgrave. And on that date, according to him, one William Fitzosbert accused his brother, Richard Fitzosbert, of speaking out against the king and his justicar for excessive taxes. And then later court records from our important year, 1196, supposedly say, quote, face to face, he opposed the alderman on all occasions, asserting that by the corruption of the nobles, the king's exchequer was shamefully defrauded and labouring to effect an equal and impartial assessment of the citizens according to their means. For this purpose, he repaired to the king in Normandy, praying peace for the citizens and for himself." Unquote. So it appears that Fitzosbert did travel to France to see the king and complain of the actions of the Eschivins and others, and maybe that they were threatening his life. The records go on, quote, this request is obscurely expressed, nor are we informed of the answer which he received. But since we do know that Longbeard complained of the extortions committed by the king's ministers or officers, and that upon his return, the chief justicar or regent, Archbishop Hubert, was moved to exceeding wrath, we may conjecture that the authority of the latter was restricted or his discretion impunged. Unquote. Fitzosbert had taken the best of what London could throw at them and returned. If not with the king's mandate, then certainly without the king's condemnation. I mean, from Richard's point of view, if this campaign of Fitzosbert managed to raise more money, why should he condemn it? William of Newbury confirms this as he describes, quote, On his return to his own home again, he began afresh with an accustomed craftiness, to act with confidence, as if under the countenance of the royal favour, and to animate strongly the minds of his accomplices." Unquote. So, Fitzosbert was in London at the head of a powerful political faction, seemingly with the king's blessing and support, raising bloody murder about large-scale graft and corruption taking place, which may or may not have happened under the nose of the Justicar of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And as we just heard, the response of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Walter Hubert, was, he was furious. And according to legal records, it was also explosive. Quote, Hubert at once declared himself as an open adversary of William Fitzosbert in particular, and of the citizens at large. Orders were issued by the Justicar that any one of the commonality found without the walls of the city should be arrested as an enemy to the king and the kingdom. Either the franchises of the citizens or their strength, or perhaps both combined, restrained or deterred the Justicar from attacking them within their own municipal territory." Unquote. So here we see straight up that the Archbishop of Canterbury was declaring the citizens of London to be traitors to the state. Boy, that escalated quickly. Did someone hit a bit of a raw nerve there? Now, there's clearly more to this, 
Why, if this was so, was he not able to deal with them? The, the suggestion was that this London party was simply too powerful, but we really don't know. We do know, however, that Hubert supposedly escalated things because these court records then say, quote, he did his worst, and around mid-Lent, several London merchants attending Stamford Fair were seized pursuant to his commands, unquote. Again, this was written much later by Palgrave, but it does suggest a growing escalation between Archbishop Hubert and William Fitzosbert. And several centuries earlier, William of Newbury seems to back this up when he says, quote, As soon, however, as the suspicion and rumour of the existence of this plot grew more and more confirmed, the Lord Archbishop of Canterbury, to whom the chief custody of the realm had been committed, thinking disguise no longer expedient, addressed the congregation of the people in mild accents, unquote. So Walter Hubert, also a crusader, don't forget, and Richard's number one, the Justicar of England, came to London. But notice the interesting choice of language here. He intervened, thinking disguise no longer expedient. So does that mean he turned up in disguise? Well, if he'd been arresting London merchants at the time leading up to it, yeah, that would make sense. But Newbury tells us that the Archbishop of Canterbury had turned up in London and was suddenly addressing a crowd of people, not with the fires of indignation that Fitzosbert was doing, but in mild accents. And during his speech, he, quote, refuted the rumours that had arisen, and, with a view to remove all sinister doubts on the subject, advised the appointment of hostages for the preservation of the king's peace and fealty. The people, soothed by his bland address, agreed to his proposal and hostages were given, unquote. So Hubert's move was simple. He would stop arresting Londoners if they would keep the peace, and to be sure, they would give over hostages. The deal with, if no one decides to riot, the hostages would eventually be allowed home. If someone does do something silly, the hostages are punished. Hubert had struck, and with the bland speech of a reasonable politician, he dented the edge of the campaign. Or so he thought. But at this point, I think it indicates that however Newbury tries to hide it, Mayor Fitz Aylwin was no longer the overlord of London. It was Fitz Osbert, the champion of the poor and the middle class. He was in charge of London. You want proof of that? Quote, Nevertheless, this man, bent upon his object and surrounded by his rabble, pompously held on his way, convoking public meetings by his own authority. Unquote. The battle lines were set. London was now under the sway of this powerful speaker, this man with a long beard. He could hold meetings whenever he wanted. And the mayor, Fenry Fitzalwin, was clearly no match. No, now Fitzosbert was facing off against Hubert Walter. And from the impression we have, Walter was a smooth politician and Longbeard was the fiery public speaker. How could Hubert take this man down? The answer is by playing very, very smart. Remember what I said about London being the home of the ferocious religious faith? Fitzosbert now seems to have captured the passion Rahiri had discovered back in chapter 57. In the 12th century, politics didn't exist as it does now without religion. Back in the 12th century, everything was framed within a Christian framework, and that included whistleblowing. Fitzosbert wasn't just delivering powerful political broadsides against the oligarchs of London. He was unleashing powerful sermons against them. Now, William of Newbury paints for us a picture of these sermons, coloured in his own unique terms designed to make Fitzosbert look bad. Would we perhaps get a hint of what these speeches sounded like? Quote, The pride of his discourses is plainly shown by what I have learned of a trustworthy man, who asserted that he himself had some days before been present at a meeting convened by him, and he had heard him address the people. Having taken his text or theme from the Holy Scripture, he thus begun, With joy shall he draw water out of the wells of salvation, Isaiah 12.3. And applying this to himself, he continued, I am the saviour of the poor. Do ye, O poor, who have experienced the heaviness of rich men's hands, drink from my wells the water of the doctrine of salvation, 
and ye may do this joyfully, for the time of your visitation is at hand. For I will divide the waters from the waters, the people are the waters. I will divide the humble from the haughty and treacherous. I will separate the elect from the retrobate as light from darkness. Unquote. Now, if that is a verbatim copy, and we only have William of Newbury's trustworthy man to say it is verbatim, but if that is a verbatim copy of his words, then it's a hell of a speech making Longbeard out as someone who sees himself in messianic terms. In fact, according to these claims, he is describing himself as a messiah. And that, oh, that's heresy. And that gave the Eschivins and the Archbishop of Canterbury an opening. Newbury continues, quote, The aforesaid ruler of the realm, by advice of the nobles, summoned him to answer the charges preferred against him, unquote. Charges? Yeah, probably heresy. And so the confrontation was set. Fitz Osbert was summoned to appear before Walter Hubert, possibly on charges of heresy. But, quote, when the time has come, he presented himself so surrounded by the populace that his summoner, being terrified, could only act with gentleness and cautiously defer judgment for the purpose of averting danger, unquote. This is literally saying that Longbeard turned up and brought an army. Archbishop Hubert was terrified. In a show of force, the Justicar of the realm found himself facing down the demagogue and the mob of London. Hubert decided to defer judgment, probably on the allegations of heresy. But they were not done. Things were rapidly speeding towards confrontation. Hubert was determined to act. Fitzosbert had to be arrested. Quote, the period, therefore, at which it was possible to find him unattended by his mob, being discovered by two noble citizens, especially now that the people out of fear of the hostages had become more quiet, he sent out an armed force with the said citizens for his apprehension. Unquote. So now two of London's Eschivans, local agents on the ground, discovered Fitzosbert was not always with his mob. The authorities acted quickly. These two men, one of which is later named as being called Gregory, or a son called Gregory, led an armed force to arrest William Fitzosbert on the streets of London. They moved in, and violence quickly erupted. Newbury describes what happens next. Quote, As one of them was pressing him hard, he slew him with his own axe, which he had wrestled from his hand. And the other was killed by someone amongst those who had come to his assistance, unquote. William Fitzosbert had killed Gregory of London, and Gregory's companion had been killed by one of William Fitzosbert's companions. Blood had been spilt. Someone had died. It was on. And what does Fitzosbert do? Quote, Immediately upon this, he retreated with a few of his adherents and his concubine, who claved to him with inseparable constancy, into the neighbourhood of St. Mary, which is called Le Beau, with the intention of employing it not as a sanctuary, but as a fortress, vainly hoping that the people would speedily come to his aid. But they, although grieving at his dangerous position, yet out of regard for the hostages or dread of the men-at-arms, did not hasten to his rescue, unquote. The church of St. Mary Le Beau was now Longbeard's base. Now, Newbury said he settled in there to turn it into a fortress and not use it as sanctuary. But church sanctuary was a powerful legal tool. It could be he fled there in order to wait for someone else, preferably the king, to hear his claim that he'd just been acting in self-defense. And if that's so, the Archbishop of Canterbury knew he had to move quickly. Quote, Hearing that he had seized upon the church, the administrator of the kingdom dispatched thither the troops recently summoned from the neighbouring provinces. Unquote. So, from Kent and Essex and Middlesex, an armed force surrounded Fitzosbert in the church of St. Mary Le Beau. And, quote, Being commanded to come forth and abide justice, he chose rather to tarry in the vain expectation of the arrival of the conspirators, until the church, being attacked with fire and smoke, 
he was compelled to sally out with his followers. But a son of the citizen whom he had slain on the first onset in revenge for his father's death cut open his belly with his knife, unquote. The troops had attacked the church. Later versions of this story would say it was Fitzosbert who had started the fire, but here it is clear the Archbishop of Canterbury had ordered them to set fire to the church and to drive out Fitzosbert, and it ended up with him being gravely injured by the son of one of the Londoners he himself had killed. The alleged heretic was brought to the Tower of London. Quote, being therefore captured and delivered into the hands of the law, he was, by judgment of the king's court, first drawn asunder by horses and then hanged on a gibbet with nine of his accomplices who refused to desert him. Unquote. The authorities had won. Accused and found guilty, Fitzosbert was stripped naked, dragged across the streets of London, where he probably died from the injuries or was in a pretty bad way, and then him and nine other ringleaders were hung by actual chains, not ropes. Quote, Those persons, indeed, who were of a more healthful and cautious dispositions, rejoiced when they beheld or heard of his punishment. Unquote. Ah, the danger had passed. Fitzosbert's attack upon the Eskivins of London and the Archbishop of Canterbury was over. All was at peace, right? Well, not quite. Newbury goes on to add that, quote, The conspirators, however, vehemently deplored his death, taking exception at the rigour of the public discipline in his case and reviling the guardian of the realm as a murderer in consequence of the punishment which he had inflicted, unquote. Now, while Newbury was convinced... Fitzosbert was a murderer and troublemaker. Clearly, many disagreed with him. This was serious. The situation actually escalated. This is clearly saying that within London, Fitzosbert's supporters simply did not believe the allegations brought by the Archbishop of Canterbury, that Fitzosbert was a martyr. And everyone knew just how powerful a martyr from London could be. One martyr from London had just humbled the mighty King Henry II, saying Fitzosbert was a martyr would make him way more powerful as a symbol. Consider proof of this in what Newbury says next. Quote, For whereas they should have wiped out the disgrace of the conspiracy by legal punishment of the conspirator, they sought by art to obtain for him the name and glory of a martyr. Unquote. Fitz Osbert was dead, but his supporters carried on, and by art, a nice way to describe politics, sought to make him as powerful an icon as Thomas Beckett. Consider the details that Newbury tells us next. Quote, it is reported that a certain priest, his relative, had laid the chain by which he had been bound upon the person of one sick of fever and feigned with impudent vanity that a cure was the immediate result. This being spread about, the witless multitude believed that the man who had deservedly suffered had in reality died for the cause of justice and piety, and began to reverence him as a martyr. The gibbet upon which he had been hung was furtively removed by night from the place of punishment in order that it might be honoured in secret, while the earth beneath it, as if consecrated by the blood, was scraped away in handfuls by these infatuated creatures, to the extent of an intolerably large ditch. And now the fame of this being circulated far and wide, large bands of fools and curious persons flocked to the place, to whom doubtless were added those who had come from out of the various provinces of England on their own proper business to London, unquote. <laughs> now this is hysterically funny in many ways to our modern sensibilities. But think about it. William of Newbury is describing the sudden and powerful cult for the martyred Fitzosbert, as surprising and foolish, yet as we discussed when we talked about the miracles of St. Bart's, this is very much in keeping with the nature of London. Miracles were a thing. Fitzosbert may be dead, but the movement he inspired was now being driven by religious exaltation, and it was growing. People from outside London had clearly begun to hear of his cause. Word was spreading. While Longbeard had started the fire, it was now burning increasingly out of control. Quote, the idiot rabble, therefore, kept constant watch and ward over the spot, and the more honour they paid to the dead man, so much the greater crime they did impute to him by whom he'd been put to death, unquote. 
This was no longer a fight with the Mayor of London. By being responsible for the execution of Fitzosbert, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Justicar of England himself, was the target of the scorn and fury of his followers. He was being named as guilty by London. And remember, William Longchamp, the Chancellor of England, had been toppled because his sister and brother-in-law had jailed the Archbishop of York for disobeying the King's command. Now, the Archbishop of York had disobeyed the King's command, but in order to arrest him, they had violated the sanctity of a church, and that had caused such a huge reaction across the nation that it ultimately forced Longchamp into exile, and he didn't even have anything to do with it. Here was Walter Hubert personally ordering the violation of the sanctity of a church in order to execute this outspoken whistleblower. This situation could go very south very quickly on him. He had to act fast. And so he did. And his reaction was one everyone in the modern era would recognise immediately. What followed was a twofold response. The first was a PR campaign. And William of Newbury's account is part of that campaign, because he goes on to say, quote, For in addition to the fact of his having committed murder shortly before his execution, which alone should have sufficed, his own confession before death must redden with blush the countenances of those who would fain make themselves a martyr out of such a man, unquote. So yes, apparently, said the Archbishop of Canterbury, just before he was killed, Fitz Osbert gave a confession. And what did he say? Well, Newbury claims, quote, As we have heard from trustworthy lips, he confessed that he had polluted with carnal intercourse with his concubine that church into which he'd sought refuge from the fury of his pursuers, unquote. So, yeah, yeah, apparently he had sex in the church while surrounded by armed soldiers. Apparently. Pity those who could have verified that were now also dead, eh? But this supposed last-minute confession to Rumpy Pumpy in the pews was not really enough. Walter Hubert needed more. And so Fitz Osbert's supposed last-minute confession also had, quote, what is far more horrible even to mention, that when his enemies had broken in upon him, and with no help at hand, he abjured the son of Mary because he would render him no assistance and invoked the devil that he at least would save him, unquote. Yeah, yeah, so Fitz Osbert called upon the devil to save him. See, see, he was a heretic. Well, that's the line being put out there. William of Newbury has to admit, however, quote, his justifiers deny these tales and assert that they were maliciously forged in prejudice to the martyr, unquote. Yeah. I, I think they've got a point there, just, just between you and me. But the PR campaign was only one part of Hubert Walter's response. Hubert was playing for keeps here. He was backing up this PR campaign with a serious show of force. Quote, The administrator of the kingdom sent out a troop of armed men against the priest who had been the head of this superstition, unquote. So these men go out and arrest the priest, calling Fitzosbert a martyr, who, as William of Newbury has said, was probably a relative and maybe even a brother. But the armed men were not done, and after arresting the head of this movement, they, quote, put the rustic multitude to flight, and capturing those who endeavoured to maintain their ground there by force, consigned them to the royal prison. He also commanded an armed guard be constantly kept upon that place, who were not only to keep off the senseless people who came to pray, but also to forbid the approach of the curious, whose only object was amusement, unquote. If this happened today, we would know exactly what we were seeing. A regime is under threat. They kill the threat and come after his supporters. The priest who led the campaign and his principal supporters, and uh, they locked them up in the Tower of London and then posted guards to prevent his followers from congregating at the important places and drive off everyone. Yeah, yeah, this is a clampdown. And forget the 12th century. Here in the 21st century, we've all seen examples of this. Troops on the streets and a massive PR campaign against the opposition. There are military junters around the world who'd be proud of doing that. Newbury's account ends with the following words. Quote, after this had lasted for a few days, 
the entire fabric of this figment of superstition was utterly prostrated and popular feeling subsided, unquote. And it was done. The great Fitzosbert rebellion was over. There are a few final stings in this tale, however. Firstly, given Fitz Aylwin had only held the office of mayor for a few years, you would think this kind of thing would have toppled him from his position. But it didn't. In fact, it helped him. As I discussed only two chapters ago, there was a reason kings and emperors were appointing pedestrians and mayors to their cities. What Fitz Osbert had shown was what I described back then, the dangerous passions of the communes of Italy now transported to the streets of London, the dream, the delusional dream of actual civic power being in the hands of the poor and middling rich. No. If anything, this whole episode reinforced Fitz Aylwin in his position. So maybe he was guilty of being as corrupt as the day is long. But he kept things nice and quiet and stable, didn't he? Indeed, he was never to face such a crisis again. Henry Fitzalwin was to continue now for another 16 years, secure, the face and voice of stability. His reign as mayor never rocked as it had been by the wild man with the long beard. Meanwhile, in 1198, merely two years later, Hubert Walter was forced to resign the position of Justica. His own monks back in Canterbury, to whom the Church of St. Mary Le Beau belonged, were furious that their own archbishop had in his haste and anger at Fitzosbert violated the sanctuary of a church. They complained and appealed to both the king and the pope, Innocent III. What Hubert did was seen as a violation, and that this was done by the principal officer of the church in England only made the offence worse. In time, this began the events that were to lead him to abjure the position of Justicar of England. And while he remained in post until the next century as Archbishop of Canterbury, Fitzosbert did get a small measure of revenge upon the man who killed him. And as for Longbeard himself, was he a heretic as his enemies claim? Probably, but not in the way his enemies said. It does seem that, without overtly romanticising this man, in many ways Fitzosbert's voice is one of the first of the voices of London that called out for a thing the city would soon demand more and more, a cry for freedom and liberty. As the historian Clayton once wrote, quote, In the slow building of English liberties, William Fitzosbert played his part and laid down his life in the age-long struggle for freedom as many a better has done, unquote. And remember that line where Newbury had pawned scorn upon an idea. He had accused Longbeard of beguiling the people with, quote, a desire for unbounded liberty and happiness, unquote. And that line strikes a chord. A few years ago, I remember attending an event at Temple Church in London. There was a recording of a show for the BBC World Service about the importance of the Magna Carta Libertatum, the great document that would be forced upon King John in less than 20 years' time from this story. During this recording, I was very interested to hear the opinions of an American legal scholar and how he discussed how important the Magna Carta was for American jurisprudence and how that document was venerated on both sides of the Atlantic. Here we are merely 20 years before that document existed and we're discussing the story of a man who called for unbounded liberty and happiness. Wait, American listeners, how does it go again? Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness? Yeah? Was William Fitzosbert some great proto-revolutionary in whom we find the seeds of later revolutions made real? No, that would be overtly romanticising the man. But his voice and his campaign did strike a chord. He promised something impossible to give, but the idea of which we were to see not just played out before us on the streets of London, but arguably we see small elements played out across the centuries to come in many nations. Could it be that over these centuries to come, in the long road towards where Londoners now vote for their mayor and get all passionate and bolshy and opinionated about it, could it be perhaps 
that the first true call for this power started now, with this tale. Could it be, perhaps, that in a small way, all of London's history from here on in exists in the shade of William Longbeard? And I'll leave it there. A slightly longer episode, but I think it was worth it given the topic. Thanks for listening, and I really do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast exists due to listener support, and I would like to gratefully thank all the subscribers who've managed to keep us going for another month. Thank you, genuinely. If you find this podcast entertaining, and I'm really amazed and grateful that you do, and if you can help, you can support it via the membership page over on the Buy Me A Coffee site, or make a one-off contribution there. Or if you don't have the funds to do that, or don't wish to do that, then I'll just be humbled if you could simply leave a nice review or give this show five stars. And I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week for chapter 80, I think. Bye.